All right, we are continuing our conversations with Yogananda. We're down, probably down to the last 50 pages. We'll see. I left an unfinished thought in my Sunday service yesterday. So I'll have to, uh, I'll have to fix it on Sunday. <laughs> I'm starting to remember though. Now I have to tell you what the unfinished thought was. In, on Sunday I was talking, it was Mother's Day, and I was talking about uh, when I was a young monastic in the 70s and there was about 10 of us women who lived as nuns uh, at Ayodhya, what is now the Ananda village. So in any case, we were of an age when a lot of our friends were having babies and we were watching what that phenomenon was like. And uh, Swamiji gathered us together one evening and he told us, you know, if you've made the choice not to have a family, and not to have children of your own, he said, don't imagine even for a moment that the kind of utter self-sacrifice that you see parents and mothers making for their children, he said, God will require that of you and much more because everyone in the world is your child and you're going to have to sacrifice for everyone the way a mother sacrifices for her own. So I always remember that whenever I see mothers and I've enjoyed the fact that I've not had children. It's not been my destiny in life but it has never been out of an avoidance of responsibility and it's, a, it's just a very important thought to keep in mind when you renounce the small self you have to embrace the infinite self otherwise all you're doing is contracting you're not expanding more is asked of you not less alright number 382 master says these are master's own words this whole one notice lazy people how, whether seated or moving about, they keep moaning and sighing. Watch yourself. See that this tendency doesn't develop in you. Be energetically and silently active. Emphasis on silently. Active for God. If you want to taste his joy within. So Master made the most interesting observations. You can see how Swamiji just put these things down in his notebook and didn't know what he would ever be able to do with them. When he was writing The Path, he remarked that he had so much that was interesting about Master, but The Path was the first book he wrote about his life with Master, which later became The New Path when he edited it. But he said that, as he put it, the energy level of that book just precluded, you couldn't go in a lot of little tangents and just stick in things that were interesting. When I was working on the book that I just finished about Swamiji, I had exactly the same experience. I would have all these nifty things that I thought would be really good to put in, but you could feel that there was a a flow of energy that was the book and that if you just went too far in any direction, instead of enhancing it, it just drained it out. So you sort of, I think too, maybe there's a book like this of the rest of what I have to say about Swamiji. We'll have to see. May may I go on? You know, it, it... it's very odd, but if people are moving around and their minds are on other things, I just can't do it. It's Sunday service last Sunday. Two people walked in, they came in, they were going to sit down, somebody's rattling the door over here, and it's just the the thread is too slender. You know, it, it, feels, it feels like it flows, but it isn't, uh, it isn't of this world. And if there's just too much other stuff going on, people's minds thinking about other things, 
I just, I, I lose it immediately. One woman tried to do some kind of needlecraft during one of my talks, which is, I mean, I understand that because, you know, you're sort of listening. And, and sometimes Saranya has sat and knit, but Saranya is like, she can knit without thinking. So it's like, even though she was knitting, she wasn't doing anything else with her mind. But this other woman was doing a lot of other things with her mind. And I just had to ask her to stop because I just couldn't have her doing something else. In the early years of Ananda, um, it, there was just so much, uh, so many different flows of energy going on simultaneously. And people had their ideas of what community was. And they wanted to bring all their babies and their children into Sunday service. Just because, you know, the sound of children's laughter and of babies crying. And it was a, it was a romantic idea and it wasn't a bad idea. Swami said quite simply, not if I am giving service. <laughs> He said, either you can have the babies and the children in there, or you can have me, but you can't have both. But he said exactly the same thing. Well, he said two reasons. He said the, the, the consciousness of children is very different from adults. And if you have children in the room, he said, you have to choose who you're going to talk to. You can't talk to both the adults and the children. And if you're talking to the adults and the children are there, they're interfering with the flow of energy. Or you can just give yourself to the children. But he didn't feel a Sunday service was intended for children. And then when the babies start crying and the mothers start nursing and every, you know, and rush, it just, it's all gone. It's very, and I've certainly, I've just found, Swami just said, as he said it, I'm not that good. He said, I can't, I just can't, I can't keep it up over all of that. I, I've, I think about it on Christmas Day, because Christmas Day is the one service that I do, which is for children. And there's many more adults in the room than the children. But I've just trained myself. I just ignore the adults completely. So it's not a matter of numbers. It's just I address the child mind in the room and the adults can listen in if they want. It's, it's, all of this is so fascinating how intuition works. It's not really, it has nothing to do with my thinking about it or writing out a story or anything like that. It's just, it's there or it isn't. I mean, the way at this stage of my life that I, I do this is a mystery to me too. So I just can see that it just happens or it doesn't. And I notice the things that keep it from happening. So having said all that, let's get back. Um, So I was talking about how Swami's, this little comment, what he said about lazy people. it, It is interesting. Breathing is what he's also talking about. Just people whose breathing becomes very um, labored and that's what he means by sighing and moaning. And he says, be careful that you don't get in the habit. And that's what was interesting to me. You sort of, all of a sudden, you kind of like, am I really just slouching around and feeling exhausted all the time and put upon? And that little phrase, silently, you can't see it, but it's in italics. Be energetically and silently active for God. Oh my. Okay, number 383. God answers all prayers. That's the first statement, which is very encouraging. These are Master's words again. God answers all prayers. Restless prayers, however, he answers only a little bit. If you offer to others something that isn't yours to give, won't that be a merely empty gesture? If you pray to God similarly, but lack control over your own thoughts, that prayer will be without power. Thoughts and feelings both must be focused when you pray. Otherwise, God will meet your little trickle 
with another trickle of his own. He will dole his answers out to you in a teaspoon. Too often prayer is more like the half-hearted mumbling of a beggar than the confident, loving demands of a friend. You know, in several, I don't know whether it's this class or whether it's been on Sundays, you know, it all blends together in my mind. But I've been, I've been thinking a lot, because uh, we've been talking, I think it's mostly talking about Divine Mother, about um, how very much without any um, barriers our relationship with God has to be. And how only in that, just com- the word is surrender that people use, but in that complete surrender of, of everything about us into a very trusting relationship with God, that's where the power has to come from. I mean, that's where the power comes from. And it's not simple. I mean, we, we, we have these things as intellectual ideas, but the, um, the, the self-protection that just keeps us sort of operating with our own ideas, which is not exactly what Master's addressing, but partly all our thoughts and all our feelings, we really have to be in relationship. And it's, if, if we think of our relationship with God in the same way we would think about any relationship, it's easier for us to picture human relationships, whether or not we're good at them or not, we sort of have, we know what it feels like to be distant from people. We know what it feels like to try to be close to someone and have them be distant from us, to withhold their thoughts, to withhold their energy, to withhold their commitment. We know what all that feels like. And if we can just project that out and realize that Divine Mother is more um, aware of us than we are even of ourselves... And it, it, it's the, the power to draw God's response is, as Master's putting here, it's exactly related to our ability to, to concentrate with everything we have and to really mean what we say. Swamiji is fond of, not fond, but he often would tell this story about a cousin of his who had a baby and the baby had some serious heart problem and there was a real question as to whether or not the child would survive. And the woman, the mother, told Swamiji, confided to Swami later, she said she was just in tears because even at such a moment when she tried to pray, she found her mind wandering. You know, she's praying for the life of her child because she believed in God, but she's also thinking about whether or not there's enough mushrooms in the refrigerator for dinner. You know, and you, you just, she said, it just, it just pushed her to the point of despair that, that she was so uh, fickle and so unable to put her mind on something so important. Of course, it's those kind of revelations that push us toward meditation and yoga practice and karma yoga and japa and chanting, all the things that we begin to do is that we become painfully aware of our own limitations. That's all. And that we have to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. You understand why um, so many of the saints are, are so self-effacing to the point of self-abnegation in their uh, 
sense of what they're trying to do versus what they're able to do. Um, but, but the other side of this is him saying, God answers all prayers. Restless prayers, he answers only a little. It, it doesn't mean that God doesn't take care of you, but in terms of being able to really feel the response and know that you're moving with the power of God, that's, you know, it's the experience of it that we're talking about. It's not, this is, self-realization is not a path where if you do certain things after you die, you'll get certain things. A friend of mine was like a first grader in a Catholic school. And he, was, he didn't really like what was going on much in his school. So he was a bit of a troublemaker. And one of the nuns told him that if he was a good boy, he'd have a bigger house in heaven. And he was actually delighted to hear that because he had no interest in having a bigger house in heaven and that absolved him of the need to be a good boy. <laughs> it had the exact opposite effect that the nun intended. But, I mean, even at six, he knew it was the most ridiculous equation that he'd ever been offered and he just simply dismissed it out of hand. But when we talk about God answering prayers in the path of self-realization, we're talking about having the sense within us that we are not alone because God is no more likely to fulfill our desires just because we're wholly concentrated on having them fulfilled but God will answer our prayers which is quite different because Divine Mother will respond but sometimes it's not, it's not so much a question of what the result is as just a feeling of confidence um, that the comforter is with us and that we're moving as we need to be moving. It's, it's very subtle, but very wonderful. But then he throws in that part, the mumbling of a beggar instead of the, <coughs> the confident, loving, confident, loving demand of a friend. The mumbling of a beggar is what we're really, that's the part that's interesting. Because we, this is also what, you know, what, what God is trying to teach us. A friend of mine who many years ago was teaching one of the original the original yoga teacher training courses that we had at the time that it was up at the village and <coughs> there. It was all brand new and we were just working it all out. She said at first she thought her job was to teach them about the chakras and the Sanskrit names for the yoga postures and the this and that. And this was way before the Yoga Alliance and all the hours of required classes and so on. <clears throat> this was pre-all of that. But she said she used to think her job was to teach them all this, all this material. She said she gradually began to realize that she was looking at angels and none of them had any faith in themselves. And she realized that her job was entirely and only to awaken them to their own relationship with God. And that once that was in place... Everything else would follow naturally from that. Because once we have that um, sense of belonging, of being a disciple if that's our path, or belonging to Divine Mother, then we, we know that we're, we're not a beggar. We're not alone in this world. I mean, this is a very... It's just... It's just this is the fundamental struggle that everyone, everyone, every sentient being goes through. You know, just as this, this deep 
deep-seated insecurity that causes us to do all kinds of things that we wouldn't do if we didn't feel that way. You know, the, only, the only person I've ever known, or let me phrase it differently, I have known one person who was really not afraid, and that was Swamiji. It's not that he wasn't, that he didn't feel this world. I think he felt it more acutely than anyone I knew. But he just wasn't afraid. I, 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 I had an experience once. It just happened. It was a split second when I was walking up the stairs in my own home. And I was just thinking about the state of consciousness of a master. And for just a few seconds, all anxiety lifted from me. Just all fear, all anxiety. And I felt a a sense of what it would be like to be completely unafraid. And I don't just mean, I don't walk around, you know, worrying that someone's going to break into my house or, you know, I don't have, I don't fear like that. What if I'm an old woman and I can't afford health care? It's not... Like I have those kinds of fears. But it's just more a lack of, re- of, of total relaxation. You know, just that little bit of getting ready to defend. What if there was nothing to defend? I mean, that was, that's the state. That's Swamiji, that's why he was so completely brilliant. It's because he could just look at a situation and see how to solve it because he had, no, he had no, nothing to protect. Just simply nothing to protect. It was really extraordinary to see and something to aspire to. And then you just talk to God like a friend. You're you're not afraid. You you don't mumble like a beggar, but you mumble like a beggar when you're afraid you're not going to get what you want or that nobody's listening to you and nobody really cares about you. I mean, just think about that image. You have a beggar on the street. They're so alienated and they're just hoping for a little something from somebody. And that whole consciousness, it's... It's very difficult to perceive it. And, you know, even if one gives, there's always, it's a very awkward kind of giving. Whereas a confident friend just knows that this is my reality and we're, we're going to work this out together. Even, you know, the, that polarity, that extreme that he's describing, we really need to reflect and see where we, where we are in this reality and how, how we can bring ourselves to the confident, loving demand of a friend. And what, what does it feel like to be able to talk to God that way? And how can we bring ourselves to that? There's so much in each one of these. That's why Swami wrote them down. Number 384. This is a good one. <laughs> As if there aren't any. Was it for political reasons, a newcomer asked Master, that you put Jesus Christ on your altar because this is mostly a Christian country? Master replied, No, that was not the reason. Jesus Christ is one of our line of gurus. In what way, pursued the newcomer, and why have you placed him at the center? Master explained, It was Jesus Christ who appeared to Babaji in the Himalayas and asked him to send this message to the West. My followers, Jesus said, are doing good work, but they are forgetting inward communion with God. Together, let us send someone to the West to teach them the art of meditation. That is the reason I was sent. Jesus is at the center because this message to the West began with him. 
to the left of him. Now ours are not in a line, if you're looking at our altar here. Ours are in a cross, which is another way that Master allowed them to be arranged. He had two arrangements. One is the cross that we use in the Palo Alto Church, and the other is the line that almost everyone else uses. Okay, so Jesus is in the center. To the left of him is Babaji, then Babaji's disciple, Lahiri Mahashaya. To the right is Swami Sri Yukteswar, to the right of Jesus. Then his disciple, which is Master himself, Master speaking of himself as Sri Yukteswar's disciple. Then his disciple, whom, as my Master told me, Babaji had sent to him for training. There's a few, you know, uh, under, uh, between the lines here that are really interesting to look at. Um, just a sec, let me find this for a second. You know, it's, 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 it's interesting that Master really wants us to understand that we have this actual active relationship with Jesus and that we're taking him out of just the traditional picture. I know this last six months I went to Israel twice in November and also in January and it was my second and third visit there, but they were very different from my first. This Just this extraordinary sense of the active participation of Jesus in our life these days and not um, through the fundamentalist approach of Jesus Christ as our only Savior but through the active self-realization Kriya Yoga as an extraordinary yogic example of absolute courage self-sacrifice power giving all the adjectives that you would use I mean, most of you have heard me say at other times that Swamiji became convinced by the end of his life that, that Master himself had been Jesus in a previous incarnation. When um, Swamiji asked him, you know, if he was Jesus, Master replied, what difference would it make? Which was a very um, carefully crafted answer. Um, I, when I asked Swamiji, I said something like, why didn't? Um, why didn't Master say it? Swami said, can you imagine what would have happened if he had declared that? You know, he was already so far outside of what anybody was expected. He said it just, it wasn't time for such an idea to be offered. You know, sometimes um, ideas are planted there, but it's not until another saint comes along that it's timely for either a certain revelation or a certain expression it's very interesting that um, both the Stations of the Cross and the devotion, the, the devotion expressed in Christmas Eve to the baby Jesus, both of those were created by St. Francis. I, I had learned about the crash, but I recently realized that the Stations of the Cross, too, walking through the life of Jesus. I, now, I say that emphatically, but I'm pretty sure that's true. That, you know, just that way of increasing our devotion. And the way the Franciscan stations of the cross are is not, oh, look at he suffered, and then he suffered a lot more, and then see how he suffered even more. It's more like, look at his courage, look at his self-offering, look at his generosity of heart, look at the, 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 the infinite love that he expressed so that we can bring ourselves to be in harmony with that. And the celebrating of the baby Jesus with a live crash, somebody told me, that, in, that, that Jesus himself, did, and that St. Francis did not have a, an image of a baby, but that he had a, a, something, a bowl of light in some way. 
that the baby Jesus, he represented the baby Jesus in, as light. Now, it was offered to me by someone in Assisi who knows all those traditions, but I, I never really tracked it down. You know, we have a, 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 a baby doll for our Jesus on Christmas Eve, and we all enjoy it. And in India, it's very common to have your Ishtadeva, your chosen deity. You have a murti, you have a statue that is the personification. And almost all the deities have a baby form that you can be devoted to, even one of the gods. And there's also a baby form. Because one of the classical bhavs, one of the classical attitudes of, toward devotion is that of a mother toward a child. When we pray... Divine Mother, Heavenly Father, um, be, friend, beloved. We're actually talking about different ways that we relate to God. It always gets said, friend, beloved God, as if beloved were a term of endearment. And I've just never been able to figure out how to make that different. But that what Master actually intended was the relationship of friend and the relationship of beloved, which is the Radha Krishna image, which is also... A, cl- a classic bhav, where I'm the, uh, God is my lover, not in any um, thing related to physicality, but but ro- that romantic kind of devotion, and that's what we're talking about. And it it isn't um, it isn't in there as the devotee is mother and God is the baby. He didn't put that in the prayer, which I think would have been a little hard for Westerners. But every Christmas we all go into it just perfectly, and. And there's nothing more spontaneous than the way that a mother loves a baby. I mean, I have a, I have a great affection for babies and small children. I'm extremely happy that I never had to take any of them home and keep them. But I like them. Um, I like them anyway. I'm always interested in babies. I love to talk to babies and just sort of because they're so they just open your heart immediately. You, and you, what you get to have is you get to have an experience. I mean, who's, most people are not afraid to open their heart to a baby. And so you find out, many people say that they really learned to love after their child was born because that was a, a relationship where they were, just as I was saying at the beginning, there was no need to have any distance. And th- what that gives us is the experience of not having the need for there to be any distance. And once we get that feeling, then we realize that that's what we want. When I was uh, running the kitchen at the meditation retreat in 1971, Swami Kriyananda would come up every other Sunday and give service, and then we would serve lunch afterwards. And on the Sundays when Swami came to give service, I devoted myself to making the best lunch I could ever make. And on the Sundays when he didn't, I just put something on the table so people wouldn't be hungry. And... After a while, I began to realize that I was not enjoying myself as much when I really devoted myself to doing the best I could. That was a much happier Sunday for me than when I tried to do as little as I could and just see how how little I could get away with. So this is why we have these relationships. We have this feeling of what it is to love without um, fear. And then we realize, oh, that's what I want. And, and I want to have that with everyone. Because in our best, at our best, what's happening is God is showing us what we're capable of. And that's the whole point of it. There was a, a, a devotee at Ananda who was very difficult to get along with. Almost no one could get along with them. Except Swami got along with the person quite well. 
And Swami said, the person is very kind and very unselfish to me, to, to Swamiji. And he said, therefore, I know they have it in them. He said, and if they can do it for one person, then they can learn to do it for everyone. It was such a positive way to look at it because all the rest of us were just impatient. But Swami said, no, they, they rise to it when they want to. That means they can. And so we ourselves, we rise to it when for some reason it's there. And then in this same context, someone wrote to Swamiji once that um, she said she was sort of waiting for something to arouse her enthusiasm. She was trying to figure out what work she should do, what she should engage in. She was waiting for something to awaken her enthusiasm. <clears throat> Swami said, well, that you'll likely wait for the rest of your life. He said, you don't wait for things to draw it out of you. He said, you give your enthusiasm. You give your energy to things. And that's how it begins to flow. <clears throat> so it's a really important thought. In our but generally speaking, it works better if there's a natural flow. Swamiji said when he first came to Mount Washington, Master had him working on construction. And Swamiji just said he's just not good at it. And he said he was very game and he was out there, but he said, you know, for every, every time he had to drive a, a, hammer, a nail into the wall, he would hit his thumb eight times before he'd hit the nail once. It was just, he just was never good at it. And then eventually Master took him out of that and put him into writing letters and um, eventually teaching and Swamiji said it, it wasn't that one was more important than the other, but there was a natural flow for him in writing that just allowed him to be his better self because he wasn't working against his flow as much. But the other balancing factor is you can't wait. You have to give your enthusiasm to it. When Swamiji was expelled from SRF in 1962 and they didn't want him to... Um, be with them anymore and he was at that time the head minister and the head of the centers and he was in India and he was sort of helping to lead the work in India and he was a vice president on the board of directors and Swamiji offered to resign from all positions he, he wouldn't resign as a monk from the order of self-realization but he would resign from all his positions he said you can put it in writing that I'll do nothing but wash dishes for the rest of my life and the board members who were wanting him to go away more dramatically than that said, I know you. One of them said, I know you. He said, she said, if you have a foothold anywhere, gradually you'll just worm your way to the top. But Swamiji interpreted it in a way that was true. He said, if he started washing dishes, pretty soon everyone in the monastery would want to wash dishes because he would just do it with so much enthusiasm and it would appear to be that it was the best job at Mount Washington and everyone would want to do it because that was his nature. It was very interesting. At one point, at one point when we were, uh, we were in litigation and we, uh, there was a lawsuit filed against Ananda accusing Swamiji of all the, you know, just make a law, literally, the lawsuit was a lawsuit that these attorneys had filed against several other cults, to use their own word. And they had literally just written Kriyananda and Ananda in place of the other names that had been there. But in some places they forgot to do it. So we could see that this was the same lawsuit. They just, you know, a litany of money and sexuality and power and just whatever. It was, it was, it was crazy. It was 
Alice Through the Looking Glass. But um, it was interesting because Swamiji had always been in this position of great respect and authority, but he sort of pointed out to us, which I hadn't even bothered to really articulate until he said it. He said, have I ever asked any one of you to do anything? Have I ever told any of you to do anything? I barely even ask. I certainly have never told any of you to do anything. And when I thought about it, I realized that Swamiji's entire method of leadership was enthusiasm. He was just so enthusiastic and and joyous about whatever he was doing that you just simply wanted to go with him. He didn't have to tell you to go with him. You just wanted to go with him because it was much more fun to do what he was doing than to do any of the other alternatives that you can think of. And that's, that's simply it. And I, I thought to myself, I didn't think, I don't think in all the years I've known him, he gave, us, he gave me one or two specific instructions. Really, I mean literally. He just never did. It was just by enthusiasm and by example and by magnetism is really how the, the energy begins to flow. So, back to Jesus and the baby, what he's saying here. Swamiji, at the end of his life, really came, really felt strongly that Master had been Jesus and really stated it as a fact. Um, so it at, lends a special thing to Jesus came together, let us send someone to the West. So we have Jesus and, and Babaji together doing this work, and then the messenger becomes Master himself. I mean, did Master go to Babaji and say, I'm going to the West? Is that, is that how it really happened, or how, how does this work? And then also, um, Swamiji said in several other places that Master actually made it clear that, that Sri Teshwar was a stand-in for his true guru, which was Babaji. And he talked about that because he says Babaji was Krishna, and Master said he himself was Arjuna. And that's the most exalted, most celebrated guru-disciple relationship virtually in the whole Indian tradition. And if that was true, then... So it's put this way. Whom, as my master told me, Babaji had sent me to him for training. And that's how Sri Yukteswar put it. So I'm raised the possibility that the relationship between master and Sri Yukteswar was actually of soulmates. That, that it was the, the, the two halves of one reality coming together, all of which just puts us so far outside anything that we can think of, that I can think of, with anything more than um, like an outsider looking in a window. But it does put Babaji in a very close relationship to everything we're doing. And Master often referred to Babaji. Once he was asked a simple question, was the question is, why do the children at Mount Washington go to the public school? And Master said, it's the will of Babaji that they do so. But Master often said he was doing things. Why, why do you, only, you speak of the unity of all religions, but you really only talk about Hinduism and Christianity? It was the will of Babaji that we do it this way. He often just attributed back whatever he was doing, that that's how Babaji wanted it done. It, I can't. What it tells me is that I do my best to try to understand you know, what discipleship is, what the guru is, how I should be in right relationship to this. But I can't, I don't know it except in words, and words are not the same as knowing something. When 
throughout my life, there was often the question because of Swamiji's position within Anandan, because speaking for myself, of his central role in my life. You know, is Master the Guru? Is Swami the Guru? Who's really in charge? You know, questions like that. And Swamiji was often very um, self-effacing about that. But it, it just always looked to me that Swamiji was representing Master to us. And whether it was Swamiji himself or it was Master through him, it was a shade of distinction that I wouldn't even know how to describe if I was asked to. So I sort of always thought it was their problem, that I would just behave as if it was Master speaking when Swami spoke and see where that would take me. And it took me as, it took me as far as I was able to go. And whatever the limitations of that might be, I never reached them. I often would say to people, the difference between Master and Swamiji is, is not discernible to me. The difference between me and Swamiji is very, very clear. So if I'll just move toward him, and when I get closer to him, I'll worry about anything that comes after that. By the end of his life, Swamiji was, was less, um, was more, more forthright in just acknowledging the importance of his relationship to all of us. I thought of him, I mean, this is how I put it to him once. I said, Master may be the king of the whole empire, but our particular province is under the, the authority of the prince. And we don't please the king by not paying attention to the prince. So I put it to Swami and he laughed and he thought, that will do, sort of what he said. You know, that will work, that works. Because he was sent to us and therefore that's how we have to work. But it's a personal decision. It's not something I wish to push on people. But when I'm asked, that's how I speak of it. Any questions or comments before we go on? Okay, we're up to number 385. Master says, When this I shall die, then shall I know who am I. You must forget yourselves and any worries you have about your own importance. Tell yourself, always, Thou, Lord, only Thou. God is dreaming through you. He is the sole reality. Won't that be nice? In the Bhagavad Gita class I gave a couple of days ago, it was all about being a Jivan Mukta. It was 3-3 uh, three, three in the Gita. Uh, chapter 3, stanza 3. And it was all about being a Jivan Mukta and how when you reach the stage of Jivan Mukta, you've dissolved all ego identification so it's not, no more karma can exist. You can't acquire any new karma. You've, you, you know that you're one with God. Um, but there is still the memory of when you were ego identified with your experiences. And it says in the Bhagavad Gita, you must recall and release all of those incarnations of ego identification. And this is, he, he puts also in that section, a saint says, I thought when I achieved Nirvikalpa Samadhi, I had reached the end, but my work was just beginning. I mean, what we are supposed to do with statements like that, I don't know. But it was fascinating to read. But that phrase has really been with me. You must recall and release your ego identification with all of those other lifetimes. You need to, to realize 
that it was always God acting through you. There was never, there was never any reality to the, the, the false, the impression we held that we were individuals acting separately from God. Isn't that a marvelous idea? It's just like, it, and, and you think of it, Master saying, uh, not, not being able to move his feet properly because I'm in so many bodies, I forget which one I'm supposed to move. Master saying, I have to ask people whether I've eaten or not because I can't, I can't remember, I can't tell. I mean, just really, what a, uh, what a glorious future to look forward to. And what a sobering realization of where we have to go. But I've, I've been, I guess, catch and release is what you do with fish. <laughs> but to recall and release. One can do that. I, you don't have to wait until you're a Jivan Mukta and you're looking over many incarnations. It's everything that we do, every time we're inclined to remember something in such a way that it reinforces our sense of separateness instead of liberating us from our sense of separateness. We have to constantly work just to let it go, just to release it. It's, it's a wonderful practice. And then any worries you have about your own importance, about who owes us what. Swami's book, Sadhu Beware, which is a small booklet, and it's really instructions for overcoming the ego. It's a really, it's quite a remarkable little uh, how-to-do-it manual for overcoming the ego. And he has, he has certain instructions there. One of them is simply, don't ex- when people misunderstand you, don't explain yourself. If people, if people, you know, think something's quite different than it was and you, you look like you're at fault or you look like you're unimportant or you look like you're a bumbler, don't explain yourself. I mean, he, he just says it just about that flatly. Of course, common sense has to also be applied. But still, it's very interesting to just even have that somewhere in your mind. And I've, I've certainly enjoyed it when things happen and I realize that I could explain something but why? You know, why do I have to absolve myself of blame? Why do I have to try to make myself look better? Why do I have to make sure that people know what I did? It's just a very good, interesting question. Why? You know, this, all these teachings imply fundamental psychological health. Sometimes I have to sort of put that in. But once one has fundamental psychological health, then overcoming the ego is really the job at hand. Number 386. Our way of life in these colonies is more normal than extreme asceticism, Master said. Think of Diogenes, who, so we read, lived in a bathtub. (laughs) I say to people, make your heart a hermitage. And Swami says, often I heard him quote from a poem by Richard Lovelace, slightly paraphrased to suit his own meaning. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. Hearts, innocent and quiet, take that for a hermitage. So, you know, people sometimes ask, because you know, in America we do live somewhat comfortably. And I remember at different times during the early years, People would try to take on more extreme measures. One man, you know, went all winter without shoes in a climate where there was actual snow on the ground. And 
Another tried to live without any heat in a climate where there was actually snow on the ground until he came down with serious pneumonia. <laughs> you know, and uh, other people live, tried to live virtually on nettles, you know, that just nettles, that just, that's the image of where you're just picking the wild greens and that's all you're eating. And, but Swamiji never encouraged it, nor did Master. Master said, in this age, you know, a more balanced life is simply better. And in the West, especially where it's very rajasic and we have to sort of cope with a very rajasic world, the way Swamiji put it in another context was it's just too, the, the age is, the matter is still too heavy for us to really get that much freedom from just physical purification, from fasting. And Swami said in a very high age where the material veil is very thin, you can make a lot of progress just with a little bit of austerity. But Master was very definite. He, he made a very strong distinction between himself and St. Francis. Francis was very austere. And Master said, he worshipped Lady Poverty. He said, I worship Lady Simplicity. And simplicity is basically having what you need, but not more than you need. And what you need is what you need in order to be able to serve God, is the way I think about it. I mean, what you need is... I live in a, a house, a bigger house than I need for my own personal need. And I also put out the effort to make it a gracious environment. Left to my own devices, I would never do any of that. But I, it, it is necessary that it be a harmonious, attractive environment because many, many, many people come into that house. And, and if it's not, and I learned that directly from Swami, watching him build Crystal Hermitage, watching him decorate it. And he sort of got it to a certain point. It's very interesting. He got it to a certain point, And I think we were traveling or something. And we saw something that was attractive and maybe it would be nice. He said, the house is fine just like it is. He said, no, nothing more is needed. So it wasn't in him at all that he was going to collect or acquire and once he got it to a certain level of attractiveness and refinement, I'm not sure he ever put one more thing into the house. And he didn't shop. He didn't look for beautiful things. He didn't rearrange it. He didn't contemplate how to make it new or different. It was just, it was done and that was that. It was finished. There it was. And because it was required for the work he was doing. So it was simple for him to have that big space because... That's what the work he was doing needed. And that's how we should look at our own lives. I, I should have what I need to do the work I need to do for God. But after that, let's not be burdened by anything. But if we're a painter or if we're a writer, if we're a, a, a sportsman, if we're a, a school teacher, you know, we, we, we might end up with vast quantities of tools or things that we need, but we need them. They're not merely there. They're not using us. We're using them. So, and then he says, you know, it's all, it's all in the spirit of your heart. It's not created by any circumstance. Make your heart a hermitage. Such a beautiful thought because we can always be alone with God and everything about this world eventually just goes away and all we're left with is whatever inner relationship we have with the divine. So let's take a few minutes break. 
Now we're reading number 387, very short. Never count your faults. Just think whether you love God enough. He doesn't mind your faults. He minds your indifference. That's a really super big, important one. You know, as long as we're sincere. I was talking uh, about a friend who recently died, actually, and two of us who knew him well were talking about um, someone from my past that's not really part of the present world. Um, you know, there, there were a lot of, you might say, unresolved karmas, seemingly unresolved karmas in the man's life. There were also a lot of notable, very notable, very high-level um, expressions simultaneously. But I was thinking about him just... It's like the only thing that matters is that we sincerely were sincere. There, there is no alternative. There, there is no, he should have done it differently. He should have learned this. He should have behaved this way. It's like if he was capable of doing it, he would have done it. And it's sort of how we have to feel about ourselves. There's this tremendous humility that has to come into it. This is related to we don't have to be important. This tremendous humility is just, we are what we are. Sometimes when people would come to me for counseling, they would start by saying, I know this idea is really silly. I know this idea is really stupid. I know it's really stupid to feel this way. That's what people would say all the time. I know it's really stupid to feel this way. I said, actually, no. (laughs) You've spent incarnations developing this thought, you know, developing this attitude. Think how many lifetimes we've worked at it and lived according to these false ideas that now bind us. There's nothing stupid about it at all. We've devoted ourselves with tremendous creative energy to develop this ego structure, which we now have enough insight to realize we would like to transcend. But it doesn't serve anything to call it silly or stupid, because it also, it totally then under estimates the power of maya by just calling it stupid you think it is stupid but it's not stupid at all it's extraordinarily clever it has it has all the intelligence that you've been able to develop in all of your incarnations has gone into this misunderstanding and it just can't be dismissed it has to be dealt with on the level at which we have devoted ourselves to it these are wily enemies and they're, they're very deeply ingrained. And the more we just kind of toss things off or, or, or condemn ourselves, and this is where this is so simple. God doesn't mind our faults. He only minds our indifference. And our indifference, meaning our indifference to um, trying to become God-realized or trying to be devoted to God. Our, if, if that is lacking in us, that's a difficulty. But the mere fact that we're terrible at what we're doing is just what we are. There's just no way. You can't get there. You can't get there except from where you're standing. Period. I, I've, I've had a different understanding of Master's statement that God is center everywhere or spirit is center everywhere in circumference, nowhere. It, it, it's come to me exactly in this context and I was thinking about it in terms of my, my friend who's now in the astral world and God knows what he's doing God alone knows what he's doing right now um, is that 
one stands at the center of one's own reality. And, and all, I mean, if you, you just think of it as the, the, the astral spine going through the center, the body is constructed around it. You know, you, the, the, when the sperm and the ovum come together, that energy begins to pulse and the, the chakras, the whole spine is created and then, you know, energy is drawn to it to create that baby. And then all through our lives, you know, our bodies just keep changing. It's the most remarkable thing um, about life is that no matter what you do, it just keeps progressing. I've often said to people, don't worry, something will happen. And then they would say, you mean like, you know, something good is going to happen? No, not necessarily, but something will happen. Just don't worry, something will happen. It always does. Because we, we, we're, we're this center point of ego identity around which all this karma squirrels. Past karma, present karma, karma that we're, we're drawing to us. And that's, God is, God is center everywhere. Wherever the one jiva is standing... That's the center, and everything will be perceived from that center. We just, we can't be otherwise. I mean, I was talking to someone just today about some decisions I made some 20 years ago, and I was explaining what my reasoning was at the time, and later I wrote an email. I said, in retrospect, it was stupid. But at the time, it made perfect sense, because where I was standing, that was all I could see, because... God is center everywhere. And from, the, from somebody else's center, my actions were incomprehensible. From my center, I never saw that there was a choice. But one remains avid in one's desire for truth. So the only thing that God minds is when we become indifferent. We, we, we want to know. This, this deep desire to know, no matter how ineffective it is, as long as we cultivate that desire. Just, Lord, I want to know. I want to understand. I remember once, uh, I, I was very incompetent. I, I really never, I was enthusiastic. I don't want to say, I don't want to over-exaggerate it, but I, I really, I was scattered in my energy and I just really did not know how to focus and I often made promise to do things that I did not deliver because I was, overextended and I would tell people I would do things and then I just never managed to get to them. I've become incredibly conscientious about doing exactly what I say now. But I was not always like that by any means. It took me well into my 30s before I just developed the... I don't know, I stopped being crazy, I guess. I just developed enough capacity to actually follow a straight line long enough to accomplish something. That the only thing that really matters is the desire for truth. And I know the only thing that got me through all of that was that I really did want to know the truth. And I, and I really would stick with it until it would come to me, even if I was defensive or foolish. Or, but just sooner or later, there was that, that pulsing core within me that was not indifferent. Incompetent, yes, but not indifferent. And, and it, it's very hard to realize... It's very, very hard to realize how indifferent God is to our incompetence. <laughs> because you just can't be better than you are. You know, we spent a long time getting this diluted. And it's just going to take us a little while to get out of it. But once we're on the road, 
Once we're on the road, we're fine. Okay. Number 388. Master said, this is so beautiful. Master said, I go through your souls every day. I seldom tell what I see, though, because these things are sacred. Oh, isn't that just so beautiful? Master living there with the monks, and he he said to Swami, I go through your souls every day. And I asked, you know, Swamiji, is Master with us as much now as he ever was? Oh, yes. I mean, Master goes through our souls every day. So we're so protective and we're so afraid. We're just, you know, trying so hard not to be seen. The Master goes through our souls every day. But he says, I seldom tell what I see, though, because those things are sacred. Oh, my. The Master worked especially on raising our consciousness from within. If we were receptive to his vibrations by helping us to change the direction of our thoughts and feelings. Okay, let me get that. I said that. The Master worked especially on raising our consciousness from within, if we were receptive to his thoughts, by helping us to change the direction of our thoughts and feelings. As someone once heard him say, if you shut me out, how can I come in? Isn't that a wonderful thought? Swamiji, I, I've mentioned this story before. Um, in this early book that Nishala wrote, Reflections on Community, I think it's called, and she did a series of interviews with a number of people who were active in Ananda. Um, Nitai was in it, and Devi, and Jyotish. And it's a very nice book. I don't know if it's still in print or where it is. It's a beautiful book. She did a really excellent job. And two of them in there, and I don't know whether it's still in the book or not. It's, it's not supposed to be. Both Nitai and Devi just made a joke about circumstance. Jo- Swami brought Jyotish and Devi down to San Francisco in 1979. We started in this little um, suburban house in the Sunset District, but then moved over into um, Pacific Heights and rented this five-story house um, that where the rent was like five times what it had been in the other house, and there were like there was room for like 30 people in that house. And Swami basically got them established in the house, and then he'd spent the whole summer in San Francisco, but once they were established in this, that house, he just drove back to the village and left Jyotish and Davy in charge. And it was, it was a big assignment, and it was a really big assignment, and it was sort of a new assignment. Their son was only like four or five years old, so it was a lot. It was a lot going on. So Davy humorously describes just standing on the doorstep watching Swami ab- drive off, and she said something about he, he just abandoned us. And Nitai also, who developed the, the beginning of the our Living Wisdom Schools, talked also about how Swami just kind of abandoned him to figure it out. Both of them used a word like that. When Swami read it, he phoned both of them up and said, I never left you on your own. I was always with you. And just emphatic. And he asked Nishala to reprint the book because it just, he did not want. I mean, they had said it in a jocular way. It wasn't even a complaint. It was just sort of like a cheap joke. Um, but he, he was emphatic about it. And it's just, he said, I was always with you in consciousness. That's how he said to us about being a leader. He said, you lead through consciousness. 
You're, you're always projecting your consciousness to the people that you're helping. And if they are in tune, they will receive your thoughts, which is exactly what Master says here. If we were receptive to his vibrations, he would help us to change the direction of our thoughts and feelings. And then Master said, but if you shut me out, I can't come in. So it just, it, it, it opens up this extraordinary, subtle sort of relationship. It, 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 what it gradually makes you realize is that, you know, what Swami says, what Master says, thoughts are not universal. I mean, thoughts are not individual, they're universal. We merely attune ourselves to a strata of consciousness, and then we think of those as our ideas. So we're always going to be influenced by something. See, that's the folly. We think we're, not, we're going to be independent, but we're not. We're just going to be influenced by something. So the question is, what will we be influenced by? And since the masters are always projecting, especially if you're a disciple and you have a guru, if you're, if you're close to Swamiji and you feel his consciousness with you, how, or divine mother, however you personify it, you know, th- that living force is constantly reaching out to you. It's a radio station. It's a beacon of light that is always being projected. And if we stand in that beacon of light and open ourselves to it, then we're, we're bathed in it. If we close up and turn our backs, the light's still shining. But if you shut me out, how can I come in? So it, it gets, life gets very, very interesting. And, you know, we have moments when we're better and worse. When I was in seclusion for months writing the book about Swamiji without distraction, just concentrating on him, he was sitting right next to me and I could feel him talking to me continuously. He just guided me through that. When I came home and, you know, I'm back into my world, I can't hold it. I'm just not capable of holding it like I was able to hold it there. But it's not gone. It's just that I can't hold it with the same, uh, the way Swamiji could hold his attunement with Master. You know, Swamiji said, I don't know where my thoughts end and masters begin. I don't know where I end and master begins. He'd become so attuned to that. That's what Master Mahashaya said to, to Yogananda, speaking of Ramakrishna. I just, I don't know where I am. and There's no, it's, it's gone between us. Because he'd simply put his um, attention on the vibration of the guru, and so that vibration became his vibration. I mean, that, that's what we're really working with. That's what real discipleship is. It's not asking for this and asking for that. It's just being on that wavelength. That's what I finally figured out with Swamiji. He, he never calculated, he never thought about anything. He, he, never, he never questioned the feeling of what he was supposed to do. He just was on that wavelength, and if he was inspired then to say something or take a certain action or do something, he just did. He trusted it completely. He was talking about someone else, so-and-so. He said, they're just not as used to trusting their heart as I am. He trusted his heart. He trusted his feelings and his thoughts because over, over many, many years, many lifetimes, he had just aligned himself and opened himself so completely they could just very confidently feel that Master was going through it. When Swamiji decided to edit the book Whispers from Eternity, which um, there's, there was a first edition and then SRF published 
a, a, a version that was so highly edited that the book, it was a completely different book. Um, I don't know whether they still have that book out. When we were trying to explain the difference, we couldn't really quote SRF's book. Uh, with the original book we could quote because it was in the public domain, the SRF book, the edited book was their copyright. So we couldn't do a side-by-side -side comparison. But we uh, said, you know, the original poem was 112 words, I think it was. And in the edited version, 10 of the words were the same, <laughs> which made the point. So when the original book became available in the public domain, Crystal Clarity was going to print it. And they had made a beautiful cover that has the dark, it's the dark cover with the lotuses and it was Yogananda's book. It was a very, it was a very popular book. And we had a lot of pre-orders. It was going to be a bestseller. And it was a verbatim reprint of the first edition because we had a right, anybody in the world could do it. There was no copyright. So they sent him the galleys, which the galleys are, the whole thing is completely laid out. The printer says it for you to just review and make sure there's nothing egregious so they can just go ahead and print it. That's how far it was in the process. And we had orders and so on. Swami looks at the galley and he says, this book needs editing. I feel Master wants me to edit this book. And the director of Crystal Clarity gulps and explains that we have orders on it and, you know, our reputation is at stake and we have to meet the deadline and it has to be back at the printer by like four days from that point. Swami says, Master wants me to edit it. And it was his I believe it was his birthday weekend. It was either his birthday weekend or his September 12th weekend. I feel like it was his birthday, but I'm not sure. 12th is his discipleship anniversary. The 19th of May is his birthday. And he was at Ananda Village. I was there. I, didn't, I don't live there. I haven't lived there for years, but I was there. And about 500 other people were there because it was a huge celebration for him. And, you know, he had breakfast, lunch, and dinner and tea in the afternoon. I was, he was totally scheduled. And he felt that he needed to edit this book. So he just started. And um, he, he, we called it guerrilla editing. Guerrilla, not gorilla, but just darting in and doing editing. And he just started working on the book. And he, just, he said he would just start and he would just know exactly what was meant to be there. And he, would just, he just edited like this with a pen. And then he handed that to me and then I typed it. So we did this for about three days. He edited faster than I could type, partly because his handwriting was a little, sometimes hard to read, but we managed. Um, but there was also, some people were quite upset that he was editing that book because it was Master's original book. And there, there was sort of, you know, I like it the way it is. I don't like what he's doing. There was a lot of back and forth. I tend to like try to go right to the heart of an issue. I said, he said that he felt Master telling him to edit it. Like whether I like it or you like it, it doesn't really matter. Either you feel he has the right to say that and you respect that when he says that, it is what it is, or you don't. And that's really actually all that's happening here. I mean, I, I, I like to just pare things away and just get right down to whatever the, the essential issue is because otherwise you spend all this time comparing one poem to another poem and trying to decide whether you like it or not. You don't have to like it, 
but you also have to decide whether he was presumptuous for doing it and on what basis you make that decision. You know, everything, is, everything is fascinating. And you know, Swami did not make it easy. It, it's easier. It was easier at the end of his life um, because of his, the way he expressed himself. It, earlier he would do too many things that were challenging. But it, it always just comes down, what do, I, what do I know from my own experience? What do I really feel is true? That's what all of discipleship is. How, how do we really know? You, know you, you say, well, I just know. I, I believe that Master is true. I believe that I'm his disciple. I believe that Swamiji is true, and I, I feel that I'm his disciple. Whatever you actually feel, you have to ask yourself, why do I feel this? How do I know it? And how deeply do I know it? And then, if you, then God will start pushing on you. How deeply do you know it? And that's where that core of sincerity comes from, which is how deeply do I really know this? I may not know anything about myself or my abilities or my future or my success or failure, but this I know. And then once you have that, there's, there's no... I mean, that's what you have to cultivate on the spiritual path is... Wherever, Sister Gyanamata put it, whatever absolute solid point of certainty you have, you need to just stand there and not say any more than that. You know, I, um, now I feel quite comfortable. It's obvious to me that I'm Swami Kriyananda's disciple, that he was always my master. How he wants to relate that to Yogananda is really up to him. It doesn't matter. But even when I, I didn't know how to say those words or think about what it meant or anything like that, I knew one thing very particular. When I was with him, I became my better self and I knew I could learn from him. And I, just, I didn't have to go farther than that. You know, somebody has other big questions and stories and they, I don't know, I don't know the answer to any of those things, but I know this. And, and this is enough for me to know what to do this morning and in the afternoon and in the evening. And then the next day I can get up and start over again. And this is in the hour that you need it, it will be given to you. That's just sort of, you know, we, we just get very humble. But it's very important within yourself to find that point of absolute solidity and then just be able to stay there. And I'm, I'll give you one more, just a simple way to think about this. Sometimes when people first come to, to the spiritual path or to come to Ananda, their families may be concerned that they've gotten involved with a cult and you know all these different things can happen. And, um, or they, did, they think this reincarnation or meditation is so wacky. And, I was, and there's just this tendency when you're new and you're sitting at the dinner table and your uncle attacks you or your brother or your mother, you try to defend it. You try to explain reincarnation. You try to explain Kriya Yoga. And <clears throat> I suggested don't even try when they say, well, you know, you might be involved with the cult. You never know. I say, well, yeah, you know, you really do never know. <laughs> so far, it seems pretty good. I'll keep in mind what you said. You know, this reincarnation really seems like a strange idea. You're absolutely right. It really is. It's really extreme. I can just barely understand it myself. I mean, just stand exactly where you stand. One, it disarms your enemies because they don't, you don't give them anything to fight with. And also, it's less confusing for you. You know, well, you know, I'm, enjoying an, I'm enjoying it a lot right now. I know that I should be where Swami Kriyananda is. No, I, I really can't define the relationship. 
but I know that I'm right where I should be and that I've never met anyone else who's so inspiring to me and I wouldn't dream of being anywhere else but right here. And as for the rest of it, well, we'll see, won't we? And then you just kind of wake up one day, day by day, and, and from that actual foundation of certainty, then more and more certainty grows. And this is also related to what we said earlier. Who cares how important you are? How wise you appear? Who cares? It just confuses the issue. Just stand where it's true and then just stay there. All right. That'll do us for tonight. So, we went from number 382 through number 388.